Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Arthur Lowry. He's a professor at Monash University. He's also an ARC Australian Research Council Laureate Fellow, and uh, he works on uh, what's called optical communication, but also uh, he's involved in creating the world's first human bionic eye that will be implanted or has been implanted, and we'll, we'll get into that. So, Arthur, thanks for coming. It's a pleasure. Yeah, tell me about the how long has the bionic eye process been going on and uh, the project, and you know, tell me about the background of it and where it's at today. So this actually started in 2010 that the Prime Minister then, Kevin Rudd, had a 2020 vision conference where he invited uh, famous actors and also uh, scientists and engineers to think what the future might be. And uh, one of the projects put up was uh, bionic vision because Australia's got a long history with the uh, cochlear implant for restoring hearing, awarded uh, $8 million Australian dollars in 2010 to do uh, four years of research, actually, uh, which was rather hopeful to uh, create a prototype and do all the uh, clinical, preclinical testing of a bionic eye. So here we are, rather much later, supported by... Uh, philanthropists and uh, various bits of money from the university and, and more recently some money from the health minister to create uh, the first in human bionic eye and I, I should say it's the first in human it's not the world first bionic eye there have been retinal oh. implants and uh, also with second sight a cortical implant uh, a couple of years ago so first in human but not world first but if you say we've got multiple implants into the brain uh, powered wirelessly, then perhaps we could claim that would be a first. Well, okay. So when you say eye, at first you're talking about parts of the eye, the retina, the cortical implants. Is this an entire bionic eye or is it just part of the function or part of an eye? I guess when people think about bionic eyes, they think that it's like a, a glass eye that you're going to replace the actual eyeball with a, a camera type thing and right, it's yeah. going to communicate with the brain. But what we normally do is uh, have some spectacles, which are just false, really, uh, sunnies, sunglasses, and they have a camera on. And these cameras nowadays you know, produce 12 megapixels, 20 megapixels, so they're quite sophisticated. So we've got to boil down that very complex image what we can actually present to the brain, which is a, a few hundred pixels. And so there's a lot of processing to pick out the most important features of the image, the most useful ones, you know, whether it's where the path is for navigating or where the door is, or whether it's uh, emoticons for who's in the room talking with you. Is the vision from this look like computerized vision or does it actually look like real vision? Like how... <laughs> well, you, know, you, uh, you guess... talked about cameras being 12 megapixels, but what does the human eye see? And is there an analog, like how many megapixels or how would you describe it? People say the data rate it produces is about two megabits per second. And I guess a, a high definition, maybe even a 4K TV is when compressed 
54 megabits per second. So the human eye is pretty good, of course, and uh, obviously its central vision focuses on what's most interesting in the scene. So, yeah, what we're presenting to the brain is is very, very crude, uh, like uh, early television or radar systems, that it's dots of light. And with an early radar, of course, that was very useful. You could tell whether the dots of light were coming towards you and where they were and which direction and how many of them there were. And in a similar way, what we will be presenting will be useful for uh, navigation around the world. But also um, people we've talked to who have no vision, uh, they say if we're in a meeting, like a board meeting of a company, we don't know who's agreeing with us and who's disagreeing. So uh, we don't know if if they've left the room. So it's uh, very useful to have a limited amount of information if you've got none. What do you mean it's useful to have a limited amount? Is it just it's better than nothing or are you trying to say that there can be too much information? No, I'm saying it's uh, better than nothing, put that way, because, you know, most people have very good vision, just looking out the window and counting the leaves on the tree, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas uh, if you have no vision at all, you can't really tell where the window is or perhaps where the sun is, apart from that it's uh, warming your face. So, yeah, we have to start off very simply. And I can explain why, you know, if you ask me questions about that, I can... Yeah, uh, yeah, tell me, so how does this work, first of all? It looks like a pair of glasses with a camera on it, but what kind uh, of blindness does it help? What kind of conditions would it help versus not? So I've only really got halfway through the system. So uh, we've got to the processor that's taking the complex image and boiling it down, processing it down to the important features, the useful features. And then there's a a coil on the back of the head, about uh, six centimetres diameter, so the diameter of a a mug of tea. And this uh, transmits both power and data uh, through the skull to uh, little tiles and each tile is about half the size of a fingernail and um, on the base of the tile are electrodes which go into the brain and these um, inject currents which cause voltages and the voltages make the brain think as though it's seen spots of light and uh, there's a, a fairly good correspondence between where a dot of light might be in the visual field you know, what the camera is seeing whether it's top left or bottom right and uh, what's on the brain so if you put a, a picture on the brain through the electrodes then the brain should interpret that as, as something that's really been seen by the eyeball if it was there and I think you were asking me, you know, what conditions can it treat? Well, uh, because we're not relying on having a an eyeball or a nerve, an optic nerve, then we can treat many more conditions, we hope, than a retinal implant, which relies on having the optic nerve in place. It's really just replacing the photodetectors that turn the light into nerve impulses. Well, so, what types of blindness would this work with and which types wouldn't it work with? So some people lose their eyeballs through accident or injury or explosions. Some people's retinas degrade either through genetic conditions or macular degeneration or uh, as a result of diabetes. Uh, retinitis pigmentosa is a, a genetic condition. So there's all sorts of conditions of the eyeball, but uh, also of the optic nerve that uh, I know people who write to me from around the world uh, 
People who've had steroids uh, to cure inflammation of the brain can sometimes affect the optic nerve. Obviously, people who've had cancer that has uh, perhaps squashed the optic nerve. There are conditions where the blood supply isn't so good and it dies. So I'm not really a, an eye doctor or a medic at all, but uh, you, you can see that there are a lot of things that can affect the eyeball and the optic nerve on the way to the visual region of the brain, which is right at the back, essentially where you scratch yourself when you're thinking. I don't know whether there's any correspondence there, but uh, that's where, where the cortex of the brain first processes the image coming through the optic nerve. Well, I asked because this would work for some types of blindness and probably not others. Yes, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. And I think, you know, roughly it's a sort of 80-20 thing that, that uh, we believe we can treat about 80% of the, the people who are blind. But obviously we'll be focusing on those where a retinal implant can't be used. That, that's a sort of easier option in a way. But there are many people who've lost their sight through damage uh, to the eyeball itself from you know, explosions or war or industrial accidents or car crashes. And then there are people who have lost the optic nerve's ability to transmit information to the, um, the back of the brain through various reasons. Okay. Well, I guess some of the benefits of this is that it's not invasive. You just put a pair of glasses on and then well, in a way, it is in faces because we are putting uh, tiles actually onto the brain. So uh, it needs a craniotomy, which is uh, cutting oh. a hole in a skull, which can be done with something similar to a Dremel. So I, I tend to explain it as um, as an electronic engineer and a, a rather old one that uh, taking the back off a television, essentially taking a piece of bone out of the skull and replacing it to get at the brain. You're not going deep into the brain like... Uh, deep brain stimulation uh, for Parkinson's disease. It's just on the surface. We're implanting. But still, it's invasive in that way. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So what is new and novel about this? Is it the mechanism of brain implant plus the form of the glasses? Or like, what's uh, does it have different abilities than other types of implants? So one of the things um, we realized early on was that we wanted a, a system that was easy to use by the surgeons some of the early conceptual designs were we would have a, an antenna, a coil, we'd have an electronics processing unit, and then this would have um, wires like a festoon of Christmas lights to various uh, electrode arrays. And we realised doing mock-ups, this could lead to difficulties during surgery that you might uh, place some electrodes in one place and then some other electrodes in another place. And by the time you got to the third place, uh, you might have a, a tangle of wires. Uh, Christmas festivity lights always come out tangled. So we came up with the idea of autonomous tiles, which each tile has its own radio receiver uh, and its own wireless link. So, and it's not connected by any wires to anything. So you can place one tile in one place and then go, oh, look, here's another good place to put another tile. And you don't have to worry about there being tangled wires or tension on the wires pulling at the tiles. We felt it was a, a far more mechanically stable and uh, less risky procedure, surgical. So that was our, our thrust from um, about nine years ago was to put all the electronics in tiny tiles, which are nine millimetres square and 
just under three millimetres tall and put it all in there, which is a challenge because it all sort of interacts. I, I say, you know, it's one thing, very good thing to put everything in a mobile phone, but when you try and sort of shrink down to the size of a fingernail, that becomes rather difficult. And the other challenge is making devices that last as long as humans. I mean, mobile phones, we tend to just turf them. Right. At, least, at least my children do, or give them to me after they've, they've gone out of fashion. <laughs> Whereas, uh, you know, you can't do this with brain implants. So the glasses, are, are they just a proxy? Is it just interacting? So it's sending the information that comes into the glasses right to the brain? Or is it actually yes, projecting anything onto the eyeball and then through the optic nerve to the brain? No, some devices that have been proposed work by shining lasers through the iris onto photo detector arrays, replacing the, um, the retina. So they have quite a complex optical system on the glasses because you imagine you're trying to get this laser beam through the iris, which is moving, you know, as the eyes move, and then trying to get it onto the back of the, uh, the, the right place, the right pixel on the back of the eye. So we're, we're not, as you say, our spectacles, glasses are just a proxy. They're just a thing to hold the camera. And indeed, you could have a much more futuristic thing, which is just a camera on a stick, uh, that sort of thing. So we're, we're not using the eyeball at all. And um, I guess another one of the difficulties is that cameras nowadays are designed to be in mobile phones, very, very close to the processors, so they can't transmit data down a long wire if they don't have a chip in them you know obviously external webcams have chips in them so making a small camera that transmits down a wire is is actually a bit of a challenge but really not the main challenge the main challenge is making the parts that put in the in the skull because they have to last you know 50 years or so uh, at least Without well, the glasses uh, don't, just the parts in the skull. Yes, that's don't. right. And, and that, that's why we have the processor external as well, because you can upgrade the software. So, um, Well, the less junk you have in someone's body, the better. Yes, be, that's you know, right. The least as I mean, possible. And is it set to where you can upgrade it and you can add you know, these tiles or take them out, or is that very difficult to do? We have procedures for taking them out. We haven't planned uh, or investigated really taking them out and putting new ones in. Whether that will be effective or not, I don't know. Certainly you could put new ones at different parts of the brain. And that's one of the interesting things. You could put them anywhere on the brain. So put them into the sensory cortex and and provide uh, feedback for robotic arms and prostheses and that sort of thing. So we've actually been looking at where else we could put them in the brain and what that might provide in terms of benefit if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes well how far are you along in this uh experimentation is the device done and in use or what's what's the next step yeah well um these things always take longer than uh, certainly the old prime minister thought they would which was four years because uh as as we go on i always compare this to the cochlea that the people the original engineers are like, oh, we did this in 18 months, you know, what's stopping you? Well, what stops you nowadays is um, regulation. There's far more stringency on uh, the formalism of the design process, documentation of the manufacturing processes, on extensive trial results. And um, and so we're really at the stage where we have a prototype. Now, we've tried this in sheep, though sheep are not very responsive. You know, they don't tell you that 
they've seen anything. And uh, also, uh, it's very difficult to access the visual cortex. So we've just used the sheep for safety studies. So it's going to be another few years before we get it first in human, um, simply because of the the strictness of the regulation, you know, as it should be. And as you say, it's a more invasive device than a cochlear implant. Though people have been putting electrodes in the brain, uh, on the brain uh, in the mid-60s, there was Brindley at uh, Cambridge. The electronics was massive. There was racks of valve amplifiers uh, to do it. And, and nowadays, you know, the electronics, we're, we're putting, each child has half a million transistors in it. So it's uh, absolutely uh, amazing compared to, you know, early microprocessors that had 5,000 transistors. So in terms of complexity, we were following Moore's law there. Obviously, modern microprocessors have billions of transistors in, but uh, they they also dissipate a lot of heat, which is yet another problem with uh, electronic implants. You worked before on retinal implants and cortical implants, you said. Like, what, uh, how do those work? And what conditions are they for? Oh, so retinal implants tend to be for... Uh, the first thing people have, have, have used them for is uh, retinitis pigmentosa, which is a, a genetic disease uh, which you know hits people reasonably young and uh, degrades the vision. I mean, fortunately, there are not that many people. That have, I, I read many years ago 1,500 new cases in, say, the USA per year. Uh, but it's, it's a gradual degradation. So you know, when people actually want to... Uh, have a retinal implant is unknown. There's also age-related macular degeneration, as I believe Second Sight were doing some experiments in Manchester, England, which again is people in the later years tend to have, and uh, it's sort of initially annoying and and then more and more annoying. My my father's bridge partner can't see his cards, for example, though there are other ways of of, of reading cards. (laughs) You, You could do it with a computer and uh, headphones, let's say. So, yes, the the retinal implants have really been for any uh, degradation of the photoreceptors that turn the light into nerve impulses, uh, rather than the nerve structure of the ganglion cells through to the optic nerve themselves. So you really need all the nerves in place. It's just those photoreceptors that are, that are being replaced. And of course, well, what's uh, been learned so far from these uh, implants? What are the the big difficulties with them, and you know where do they shine? Well, both in the the retina and the brain, the the density of, of neurons is, is pretty high. So there's a, a neuron every thirty micrometers, so 0.03 of a millimeter. You know, so thirty neurons per linear millimeter, and we're putting electrodes in on a spacing of a millimeter. Now, we believe from research that's been done uh, on epilepsy patients in the 80s and more recent hearsay that that's about the optimum spacing of the electrodes. If you put them any closer, the brain can't interpret separate spots of light. So the challenge really is there's no good connector to the brain. There's no USB serial interface or you know, there's no socket that you connect your your chip too. So when you put in electrodes to the brain, they tend to be stimulating a, a number of neurons. So when people say, can people see colour? 
The answer is usually, well, no. Sometimes they see spots that are slightly yellow and slightly blue, I've heard. Sometimes they see things that are blacker than black, which uh, is hard to imagine, but the... Uh, the, the electrodes will deactivate the neurons or, or uh, activate the neurons that deactivate other neurons. Getting that specificity of image, getting the high resolution is, is very difficult. And my thoughts on this, though very sort of early, and other people have these thoughts as well, is that uh, if you coat the electrodes in, in some sort of hormone and get the brain to grow to the electrodes, then you know that that's probably a better way of making a... A connection. So these things called brain-derived neurotrophic factors cause brain cells to reach out to other brain cells, uh, put very crudely, uh, and make the final connection. So perhaps that is uh, using biology to sort of come to the party. Let's say. Interesting. What do you sense is going to be like a you know a near-term breakthrough? Is it just you know getting through the regulatory? hurdles and then getting this live and in use or is there are there other yeah, that, uh, that, that, mechanical things we've got the prototype working and we've got the production process going and we've got the testing you know you first make something and then you realize you need a, a lot of equipment to test it uh, on the bench the electronics and the the ceiling the hermeticity we're learning a lot about uh, testing lifetime of implants. The surgical tools we've been developing that uh, one of the people working, um, his grandfather was an eye surgeon and developed his own tools in his shed for eye surgery. So uh, he seems to have passed this on to his grandson. So um, we're working with the, the surgeons as well on that. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff around the actual implants. So there's the internal things, the tiles, there's a wireless transmitter, there's the processor, there's the camera, there's the software, and then you need uh, extra software for the clinician. So the, when this is first implanted, you've got to tune it up and set the current levels so that people see spots of equal brightness. And then you've got to have you know, chargers as well. And um, yeah, there's a lot of items of production equipment that we've developed, uh, a lot of jigs to make things. So it's, What's considered a, a success, you know, if someone's completely blind and they get uh, 5% vision, they could see light and dark and maybe a color or two, is that like a big success or... Look, success as defined by retinal implants now is is more um, seeing spots of light and then learning how to use those uh, to help in people's everyday lives. So uh, what we find, actually, we do have um, a false one like Google Glasses. Sighted people can put this on and get the, the sort of boiled down image projected onto their spectacles. And... Um, at first, it seems pretty crude that you put the thing on and you see some spots of light and you wave your hand in front of your face and you sort of see it and you see someone maybe walking by. Then you move your head and scan. So by scanning the spots of light, just like at a, a, a Logie Bear uh, TV, you can get a higher resolution image and scan over letters and see what they are. And then uh, as you wear it uh, over 10 minutes, 20 minutes, some people have worn it, over weeks, the brain gets better and better at interpreting what it has. And I guess this harks back to the old adage that you know, what you get out of your eyeballs is not a very good image. 
it's upside down at least but you know it's crude it might be defocused it's, it's moving all the time because your eyes are, are vibrating from side to side so brain does a pretty good job of turning what we see to something where we think is a, a perfect image and you know you you can see that in dreams when you dream everything's sort of perfect most of the time so the, the brain is pretty good at reconstructing uh, images even though everything might not be there yeah, where's the best place for people to find out more and to see different devices at various stages? You know, what does a retinal implant look like, cortical, and what does this new uh, set of glasses slash implants look like? Well, they can type Monash Vision Group, M-O-N-A-S-H Vision Group, into the web. That would help. There's quite a lot of press, including your own, on Google uh, or your favorite search engine. So people can see what the implant might look like, uh, well, what it does look like, there's some photos of the real thing, and um, and what the headgear might look like. And uh, we have a web page where people can type in their details and uh, we can send them an email. So we get many, many inquiries. And, and uh, now I must stress to people that uh, some people say, well, I can fly to you on Monday, um, or used to be able to, and and have it done well we're not at that stage and we we're really going to recruit from people from melbourne initially because of the logistics that obviously when people are implanted we want to talk to them for at least a year and gain their experiences and how they're interpreting the images and we want to give them simple tasks to start with and uh, then move on to perhaps taking it home and using it inside and then using it outside under supervision. So, you know, it's a long process. It isn't picking up a mobile phone from the local store or anything like that. It's uh, There's big-time interest, as you said, people are like, yeah, you know. Yes, uh, big-time right interest. Yeah, yeah, from all over the world. And, and it is very distressing because uh, many stories of how people have lost their sight and um, – people who've lost sight in one eye and then managed to lose it in the other eye or domestic violence or all sorts of terrible things have happened to people over the world hopefully we'll help some of these people in in the future but it's very early days yet i just have to stress that well very good arthur it's super fascinating stuff you're working on and uh, i appreciate you being on the podcast yes thank you very much uh nice to talk with you if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.